0: All right, welcome to another episode of Industry Standard with me, uh, Barry Katz. I'm very, very, very excited today about my guest, um, a guy who's been nominated and his films have been nominated for so many Academy Awards, you can't even count them. Mario Kassar, a guy who's a self-made man who uh, grew up and was born in Lebanon and... Um, just an incredible guy. But before I get into any of that, I just want to do a uh, what I normally do is tell a story of something that that relates in some way to my guest. You know, a lot of times, as as the producers here, Sarah, Ari, and Max will tell you, a lot of times when I tell these stories, I don't really know where they're going to go. I don't know how they're going to end. Sometimes I don't even know what it's going to be, and Right before I came on the mic, uh, they shared with me, they said, you know, isn't there something that you could tell a story about a film you put together or something that happened that, you know, might be relevant? So when I had my own company back, I had an office on uh, Wilshire by La Brea. And there was a young kid who um reached out to me all the time from New Jersey. His name was Josh Rofe. And he was a teenage kid, and he just really was this old soul who had this way about him that he just really wanted to make a difference. And his he loved uh uh watching uh the first movies of people from Scorsese to, you know, Tarantino, but Scorsese and And, you know, in movies like Mean Street and Taxi Driver, they meant something to him. And, and the guy was really, really persistent and he always would call me and email me and just, and I always liked to, I don't know, I always liked to take the calls and responses of young people who were trying to do something special because just something in my mind felt that it was the right thing to do and, and try to give whatever advice I could for people of that uh, age range. And I remember meeting with him and he gave me a screenplay called the gray in between. And this screenplay was a really, really dark dramatic screenplay of the coming of age. Of a teenager and his friends, and I was a comedy guy. You know, I started as a comedian. I, I, I was always around comedy. I, I didn't know anything about drama, but there was something about this guy that, that was really, really special. And, um, and he had this desire, and, and I just thought to myself, I got to be involved with this guy in some way. And he asked me if we would help produce his film and get it together. And without even really knowing how to produce a film, I said, yes, I wanted to help him. And he said that he was getting $50,000 from his parents and, um, and he wanted to make the film And we hired a line producer to put together the numbers and we found out that in order to do this, pulling every favor known to man, even with him as a director and an actor in it, that the budget would be $100,000. And I'd always been told by the mentors in the business like Bernie Brillstein, never to spend your own money, never put your own money into anything. But I guess I just, I didn't even have that kind of money really. But I just said to myself, you know what, I'm going to go for this. I believe in this guy. And I just basically, I remember I had a comedy club that was going at the time and and things in New York that were going. And instead of utilizing money necessarily uh, that I considered to be like money that was committed to things I decided to invest money in this film and do it for the first time in my life and the line producer comes back and he says listen there's going to be 27 locations now for those of you don't know 27 locations in a film is the kiss of death because every location you go to every place you move to it's just another setup, another teardown, more money, more trucks, more gas, more danger of an accident. Things happening. And also, I thought in order to do well with this movie, we had to find people who we could get to, to do it. And this guy was great in a room, and he had like this way about him, even though he was 18. And we created this hype around this guy. Like that he was some kind of like cool sort of something that Mario Casar has done throughout his life is sort of twist the truth at times to get where you want to go. And we built this guy up to be something special. We got him in meetings with people who he wanted. He wanted Amanda plumber. We got him in a meeting with Amanda plumber. He got Amanda Plummer. We got him in a meeting with Billy Kay, which was a really great actor at the time and had just done a really big independent movie. Billy Kay committed. We got him in a room with Natasha Gregson Wagner, Natalie Wood's uh, daughter. She committed. And then he wanted to have um, an elder statesman actor, a guy who was really well-respected, he wanted this guy named Edo Ross. We got him in a room with Etta Ross. He got Etta Ross. And then he said, you know, so everything he just wanted more and more and more. And these people had agreed to work for nothing, for like minimum wage. It was amazing. And I'm thinking to myself, my God, I, you know, I, I can make a film. We can do this. This is incredible. And I thought the kid would be satisfied. I thought he'd be happy. But I remember he took me. He said, "Listen, there's one role I want. It's an older woman. You know, when I say older, like you know, maybe you know, fifty or something like that, fifty-five. Because all the people in the movie were, were were younger." He said, "I want somebody who's at least been nominated for an Academy Award." I said, "Josh, you know, it's like we're doing a movie for a hundred thousand dollars. Like, what are you doing? We're pulling every favor on the man. I want Anne Archer." I said, Josh, it's like, I I mean, I I believe that anything's possible, but how are we going to get Ann Archer? Get me in a room with Ann Archer. Get her the script. Get me in a room with her. And sure enough, again, the guy couldn't be denied. He just kept going and pushing. And he got in the room with Ann Archer and she agreed to do the movie. And so here I was, my first feature film that I was ever doing, my company, and we were in a situation where we were moving forward with all these respected actors. And I remember this vividly because a person working with me at the time, uh, Brian Voke weiss uh, in my office, he was a guy who was just, he was that young kind of person in Hollywood that was like a pile driver. Like he could, he wanted, when he wanted to do something, he would go and he would move. And there were like, there was paneling on either side of his, his head. And he wanted this so bad. He came to Hollywood in this area to make movies and to make great content and product. And this was an opportunity for him to do it. And he also like josh would not be denied and he put these things together and pulled all these favors and he was like he was hiring people that would help work on this film that would just were passionate and cared about things and if somebody didn't do their job they were gone and he'd bring in another person and i'll never forget how naive i was about filmmaking i came in the office one monday probably around nine o'clock in the morning, nine thirty, And there were like about 30 people in the office milling around and meetings and things like that. And I remember going over to Brian and giving him that finger, like, you know, come here for a second. Will you come here for a second? I go in my office. There's people in my office. There's people all over the place. i would, like take them outside. And I said to him, um, Who are all these people? What are they doing here? And he looked at me and said, Barry, um, we're making a movie. We're making a movie. And when you make a movie like this, this is how it's done. And we shot the movie in probably less than 21 days. We did the twenty-seven locations, only went over budget by about $5,000 and I was very, very proud of the movie and I was very proud of what we did, but in the end, we got our audience, we had set up a showcase with Cassie and Elways, who was at William Morris at the time, one of the biggest Independent movie salesman of my generation. And he set up a screening for the head guy at the Sundance Film Festival to come see our film. And I remember sitting in that theater in the back, looking at the movie, and just seeing that one head of the big decision maker of Sundance. And even though after I saw the movie, I really didn't have the feeling about it because I was a comedy guy, I was hopeful. I was hopeful that the money that this young man put in would work. I was hopeful that the money I put in would work. And I was hopeful that all these actors and actresses that we got would help us sell the film. And I remember leaving the theater. And getting back to my office and the call came in that the movie wasn't for him. And the movie wouldn't make the Sundance Film Festival. And believe it or not, even though I had suffered like a bone crushing defeat because it was the first film I'd ever worked on in my entire life and i just found out that the opportunity was lost and that was the big opportunity to get it distributed and going at the time it drove me to want to be in the film business more and want to figure out a way to be a producer on films and to and to get in that world and know that In some way, I could have an impact on it. And I think if that movie had been really successful, I know it would have been an easier path. But I wanted to share with you guys that that crushing defeat motivated me so hard to be a better television producer to be a better film producer to be a better manager and it taught me the lesson that sometimes it's very important to suffer defeat because as I found in my life without it there won't be any successes
1: go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with barricades and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water.
0: I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking.
1: Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? How about the
0: air? People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you
1: want to be successful in show business. you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz.
0: <laughs> Here we go. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. I'm undeniable. Yeah. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very excited. I'm going to introduce my guest today. Listen, there are so many credits I have to get to with this. It's like, bear with me. This is like war and peace. This guy is incredible. This guy was born in Beirut in 1951. And he's gone on to be one of the greatest film producers of our generation. A major innovator in international motion picture productions and financing and distribution. He's had decades of experience as both a producer and executive producer of worldwide blockbusters. And he can be characterized, like his movies, as an action-packed producer. He's released 36 motion pictures which have been nominated for 16 Academy Awards and have made over $3 billion at the box office. He is largely considered to be the godfather of international film distribution and marketing. He is renowned for his talent of greenlighting projects that go on to become some of the biggest movies in the world. And he served as an executive producer on such hits as the Rambo series of films, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, Basic Instinct, Total Recall, Terminator 3 Rise of the Machines, Cliffhanger, Chaplin, and Stargate. But before I say his name, I just want to tell you some of the quotes that he's famous for because I love these quotes. Whenever I've done a motion picture, I've always tried to make it a fun experience, especially when we were starting out, because it was really tough to get our first picture made. So if there's no fun, then there's no point in doing it. I'm not a dentist or a lawyer. Making movies is the only thing that turns me on. Independent film is difficult to produce no matter what you do for financing. There's always a missing piece. I think the road to becoming a producer is one thing. The road to becoming a director is more interesting. I find myself talking more and more to young filmmakers these days, and the one piece of advice I give, don't force it. If the material is good, the people in this town will know it. On producing, he once said, if it costs you $1 a day to open your eyes, you need to make $2. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today,
2: Mario Casar. What a great introduction, my friend. Thank you. <laughs> laughing now
0: <laughs> this is so wild have you you people have no idea like literally like i have been after this guy for like nine months to get this guy on the podcast i email him every week every week i email him it's like i'm in uh you know i'm in dubai okay well wh- when are you coming back i don't know and next week i email him, i'm in london Next week I email you, you're in lower Attleboro, Massachusetts. I don't know where, you know, but it's like you're all over the world. Like, I just... I don't understand how you can possibly have any kind of social life or family life without anybody telling you to pound sand with this kind
2: of schedule. Like how do you, how do you do it? It's very difficult. Uh, Massachusetts, I've never been, actually, By the way. <laughs> uh, family life is tough, but, uh, I managed to do it. Yes, I do travel a lot. It's for business mostly. And uh, you get used to it, and then you try to come back home as much as possible and spend as much time uh, when you're home with your family. But my business keeps me going around the world.
0: You've done so many things. We're going to talk about a lot of the things that you've done in your career, And, and this podcast is normally very inspirational. We like to tell about the journey. So, and I know this is your first podcast ever. So, take me back to, like, Uh, whatever a month before you ever had an idea to do anything in the entertainment business or the film business where were you where'd your family grow up uh, and and how did you decide to get into it and what were the steps that you took to get into it
2: that's an hour (laughs) uh god so basically i was living in beirut i was born in beirut and i was living in europe And then my father was in the film business. He was actually acquiring movies from Europe and releasing them in the Middle East, mostly. And then I was with him in Italy. I studied in France, in Italy, a little bit in England, uh, a little bit in Switzerland, a little bit everywhere in Europe. And then all of a sudden I decided to quit school. I don't know how the American school and the French school system works, so I can't tell you when I quit. I know I was 16. Uh-huh. And I said, you know, no more school for me. So I'm,
0: in other words, you dropped out of high school.
2: Yes, basically. I mm. was, I shouldn't say it, but I, I just didn't feel like continuing that. And I went and I said to my dad, you know what? I want to come and live with you in Italy and... uh help you out or start learning a little bit the film, the film business. I was very attracted to the film business. I used to love movies, watch movies, everything. And I went there and I stayed with him. And then I was watching all those Italian movies, the Italian Western, Spaghetti Westerns, the Italian so-called uh, war movies all done in Italy with all those Italian actors with American names. And uh, we used to buy them, he used to buy them and sell them. And all of a sudden I said to myself, okay, so I've done that, now what? maybe try another country, you know, this is, I've done that. So he moved to Paris. I said, you know what, I'm going to go try uh, Paris now. So I go to Paris and with all due respect to French movies that I, that I like very much, uh, I found that French movies were, um, did not travel very well overseas internationally, like Southeast Asia or, You forget the United States or UK or whatever. It was French movies are very kind of restricted to the French-speaking countries. So I found myself very limited. And then I said, okay, you want to be in the film business, so where do you go? There's only one place to go, right? So it's Hollywood. So I packed my suitcase and I came here.
0: How many languages did you speak at this time when you came to the United States? And how old were you? Well, I was, I think
2: close to 20. And and what languages did you speak? I spoke because I was born in Beirut and Arabic was being spoken. My father is Lebanese, my mother is Italian. So I speak Lebanese, which is Arabic. I speak French because of the schooling, English because of schools. And I was in London. Uh, I could understand Spanish because I studied Latin. So it was easy for me. I do speak, I don't know, four or five languages basically when I came here, but I didn't speak such a perfect, perfect English. Like I, sp- I mean, I understand it more now. I mean, I still make mistakes in my English. Uh, but four or five languages. <laughs> so you come to this country when you're
0: 20, and do you have anything? Do you know where you're going? Do you know where you're living? Like, how do you like? How do you do
2: it? What happened is when I was in Europe, I was uh, beside buying and selling movies to those. Uh, I started selling the Southeast Asia. And then I met somebody in Europe who became actually my partner, Andrew Vina, who I met in, I think it was in Cannes, who was looking for somebody to find him movies for Southeast Asia, Hong Kong, and, and well, mostly Hong Kong.
0: And find movies that had already been produced and made, but they couldn't sell them anymore no, yet.
2: No. Uh, pre-sale was a big thing in Europe. They used to do all those press books and glamorous photos and everything.
0: And I want you to explain to our audience what pre-sale means because...
2: Pre-sale is very simple, is you do a very nice presentation called a press book in those days, they used to call it or press kit, whatever you want to call it. Very flashy, great photos, all the action <laughs> scenes of a movie. The, it's like a mini trailer and, in, on paper. On paper, and, and then everything you... looks fantastic. And you tell them this movie costs so much and it's great, blah blah blah. And, and, then, and
0: then you say what the and, actors and that you, you want. Them to? The
2: budget is so much, and you you pre-set it. That means they're buying it before the film is made or while it is being shot. Then the result of the movie is another story. <laughs> So that's what, uh, where I met Andy, who was looking to, uh, he bought theaters, I think in Hong Kong, and he was looking to find somebody who helps him in Europe buy movies. And I said, okay, we got together. We agreed that I'll, I find him movies. And after a while, then he moved from Hong Kong to here. And I decided to come here. And then we got together here. And we said, okay, um, why don't we start buying movies? Why don't we get movies from America and sell them to the foreign because there's a demand of that American uh, movie. There was very few uh, American companies doing that, independent. Like the, I remember there was companies like Crown International or mm-hmm. the old Canon. I, I don't remember yeah. now. But when you sell movies overseas to the foreign markets, I, I,
0: I think this is important for our audience. Like you're going to these different markets. You're going to like Africa. You're going to... Uh, in the uk you're going to australia and you're trying to get as much money from these countries as you can but a lot of times as you know there's not that much money, uh, at these different countries. And if you just think that you're getting an offer from one country and you were to look at it, you'd be like, why am I even in this business? But then when you add up all the different markets, when you put them together, that's when it all comes together, well, but, but it's a lot of work.
2: Yeah. Basically what you're getting at, that will be explained later in my, in my conversation with you is that the foreign market, is a is a big a very big market put all together. That's right. Which the US distributors, which they the, the studios, they release it themselves. They basically have an office, a manager, it gets the movie. They really didn't have 25-30 years ago a real great idea how important those markets were. So when we come from that, so we know what the what the market was. So when we came here, we picked some movies, and in those days, there was the Canadian tax deals. There was all those kind of. So there was a lot of movies being financed through pre sales and a U.S. distributor. And you put them all together and you go to the bank with a completion bond and you get your money to make the movie. So we would advance them some money and we take the, the film. We make it look great. And then we go to MIFED, which was in Milan Film Festival or Cannes. Explain, explain to our audience what that stands for. MIFED, yeah. Milan International Film Festival. Thank you. Uh, it happens in Milan <laughs> and then all the distributors come and then you have your little cubicle or whatever office yep, and yep, you put yep. your poster <laughs> yep. and you try to tell everybody I have the best movie. It's like an play. exhibition hall. Exactly. I'm in booth 47. I'm right. Mario Casano. Then right. you make an ad, uh, please contact me. I'm in this hotel and this office and you try to sell your movie and you have your contract ready and it was a standard form mm. of contract and as long as you got your 20% deposit check, you you felt great. Then you hope for your letter of credit to arrive, right?
0: That's right. So, 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 but you're, you know, what's odd is you're, you're, you're twenty years old. You come here, and so, uh, as you're doing and putting all this together, do you have anything like? Are you living like? Are you living in a studio apartment? Are you living with? friends like how are you you know a lot of people are interested on this podcast how people start like sam gorris who's the president of paradigm he told me that his parents uh sold all their possessions and bought eight one-way tickets and came here and they didn't really know they knew what they wanted to do but they didn't really have a place to stay or whatever yeah. how did you you know you're 20 years old you're coming to a, a foreign country a hollywood a, a small fish in a big pond, right? were you intimidated and how did you, how was your living situation then? Were you like, in, were you like comfortable or were you living check to check?
2: Uh, I was not intimidated. I was actually living with an American girlfriend in Rome. So when I told her I was going, I wanted to move to Los Angeles, she said, great, I, I'm coming to, you can stay with us because I couldn't really yet still afford all car, apartments, you know, all the usual things to be able to live here. I didn't have much money. I used to make quite a few, uh, quite a good amount of money in Rome when I was doing my own business of buying and selling, but I was spending it the same. I mean, I was spending more than I was making, basically. I was enjoying my life. So my accommodation arrangement was at the beginning with my girlfriend at her parents' house. So you didn't pay any rent? Well, I was, no, but I was like buying stuff for the house and things like this. But that didn't last too long because then I wanted to just move on. But when I came... You wanted to to date more women. No, no, not big. No, no, move on meaning I wanted to go live in an apartment outside, not with the parents and, you know, the whole family on my head. Got it. So, but basically I came also, before I came, I acquired a movie from Italy for all Southeast Asia, which in those days was called The Sicilian Cross which I don't think anybody has seen that movie much. It was starring Roger Moore and Stacey Keach. Roger Moore from 007. From thing. 007, I'm the saint. And I mean, what did you acquire it for? Like, well, do you remember how much money? Yes, you'll... yes, I, that, that was because that was really the, my beginning, to be honest with you. I remember that I paid on paper $130,000 for all. In Italy, they didn't know what really all of Asia was. That they would write Far East. So it was Hong Kong, <laughs> Vietnam, Thailand, you name it, was there, right? So they would put one word, Far East. And people would just go and sell to a guy in Hong Kong, whatever, the Far East. So you buy it for, let's say, 10, you sell it for 12, you made you $2. So I I bought it for 130 and and they needed a 20% deposit, which I guess was $26,000, which I didn't have. But my bank account was uh, in Beirut and my godfather was the banker actually. So I, I, I bought it, I gave him a check for $26,000. I called my banker, I said, could you please delay payment on that check a little bit because <laughs> I have to go sell it now. And then I jumped on the, and then, then I met Andy here who I told you, my, my partner in Hong Kong. And he said, okay, we will partner in this one. But I know mean, I brought the film and I did everything. So he partnered with me. Well, what was his responsibility? You did everything already. It's okay. I, I wasn't thinking that. I, I said he's in America. I know him from Italy. Somebody better to be with somebody than just being alone in, in, like you say, a small fish in a big pond. So you go and you do something illegal. Not illegal. It wasn't illegal. What's, you tell what? him to delay the check. I, I just delayed a few days. I mean, that's not illegal. <laughs> I was going to pay it. I didn't say don't pay it. What happens if the movie didn't sell? That's well, We we're not. We haven't finished the story yet. <laughs> So and of course I come here and then, then I jump. I remember that those days it was Pan American. I jump on the plane and I go to Hong Kong and a couple of countries and I sell it for <laughs> trying to remember the price. I don't know. I think I two fifty or two. I, I don't. I doubled the money. You double the money. Yeah. And of course I got all the check, which immediately were FedEx to the bank, <laughs> you know, and then that's how the first income or the first base of the financial situation of the Mario and Andy or whatever started. And then from there on, we said, okay, then I went, rented that apartment or I rented a house actually somewhere on Beverly Glen. And then we made this partnership and we made a company and we said, okay, well, this works. Let's you, now. You,
0: you named the company Carol Co., right? Or...
2: Yes, we, we named it Carol Co.
0: What was the significance of the Zero. name? Zero.
2: It's a name that means nothing. In fact, it's very strange because when, when Carol Co went in chapter 11 and then was dissolved, I, I was so close to that name. I liked it. I said, can you give me back the name? They wouldn't sell me back the name. And somebody bought that name, actually. <laughs> I don't know why. And it means nothing to anyone except to me. But anyway. So that's that's how Carico started, and then I said, okay, now we know what the foreign is. Let's see what do they have films here, and let's sell them for foreign. So we became a foreign sales agency of American Canadian movies for the foreign, and we we got some really bad movies for sale, but we sold them very well. And then one day we just sat down and said, and I said to myself mostly, I said, you know what, I'm doing. All this, I'm really trying to tell everybody, I'm lying a lot, I'm telling them how great this movie is because I have to sell it at the best price possible because I was on a commission, so I would make more money. And then I'm in the hands of this either Canadian producer or whatever, and whatever he's giving me, and I'm giving to the distributor, I'm being blamed because I was the middleman. So I said, if I'm gonna be blamed, I might as well do my own movie. Let me be blamed for what I'm doing instead of what I'm selling. And then we got to, at that point, we were given something called uh, a book and a screenplay called First Blood, which was really the origin and the start of this whole saga.
0: Hey, everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Uh, and now before you got First Blood, the, the book and the screenplay, yeah. approximately how many things had you been submitted in front of you that you had in your office on the floor and bookshelves that the things that you were considering? at the time
2: well we were mostly looking for movies to sell for the foreign i i mean i can't tell you the amount of really bad movies that we were offered and we sold and uh, that's what push uh, push pushed us to start thinking about production and then we said when we said about production then we got very um, kind of carried away and we optioned a book called shogun imagine for somebody who never did anything jump and option a book called Chogan is like a major enterprise and obviously we we never ended up doing it. it was too much out of our league in those days.
0: So when you when you got the book and the screenplay for First Blood what did you pay for the rights for that book and that screenplay to, right. to produce it and in your mind when you had your line producer put the budget together what did they tell you the budget would have to be what you would have to raise to make the movie?
2: Well, first of all, you have to understand that in those days, studios were selling things that they couldn't make or decided not to make or they were on the shelf. But I think that changed, if I'm correct, after a movie called Home Alone that Warner did. yeah, And for whatever reason, they didn't make it. And I think Fox picked it up. That's and right. They had a big hit with it. So you cannot go now and get something from a studio unless they tell you, okay, go make it, come back to me, I want to look at it, I want to first look to distribute it or not, so they don't look bad. I mean, I understand them. But in those days, they were selling stuff. So when I read that, and I'm, I have nothing to do with Vietnam, I didn't even know about anything much about the war of Vietnam, but I liked the book very much, and I like the one of the screenplays that I uh, read And there was a guy at Warner's was handing this. I think his name was Jack Friedman, if my memory is correct. And we went there and we said, would you like to sell it to us? He said, uh, for him, it's like the bell started ringing. Oh, here they are, the two foreigners. Uh, Let's see what we can get out of them since we haven't been able to make it for the last seven or I don't know how many years. And he said, we... I think yes. I don't know, three fifty or three eighty, something like that. Actually, I was shocked that we said yes. And we bought the rights, and with the rights came maybe ten different screenplays because they re- they wrote this book. This the book they had draft for. If I remember, McQueen, Newman, every big act, Harrison Ford, you name it, was they wrote it for, and it never happened. So. Obviously, we didn't use any of those drafts, right? but but we owned them because we bought it part of the book, and then we read it, and we had, as you said, I, o- I only knew two people in town in the production directing business. We just arrived. I knew a director, a Canadian one. Uh, his name was Ted Kalchev. and we were friends. I used to go to his house and make pasta, and he speaks French with me, and it was he it was a nice guy and everything. And I knew uh, a writer called David Geiler, who's still a friend of mine. And who else did I do? I mean, I knew very few people. And then I said to myself, uh, I really like this. And this is my partner and me, obviously. We said, you know, this would be perfect for Stallone. I mean, this is like designed for him. That was our vision. And then uh, the budget was made... It was like, I, if I think it was about $18 million. And obviously we didn't have anything of that $18 million. So here you go again, my godfather in Paris. He would now be to Paris. <laughs> and I fly to Paris and I say, uh, you know, I need, I need to do now something different. He said, what is it? And he's seen me through my, when I was a kid growing up, how I was doing business and doing okay. So he had kind of a trust in me. I said, I need some money, I'm going to... Make my first movie. He said, But do you know much about production? That was a little white lie. <laughs> I said, Yes. And he said, uh, And you think you're going to be making money with it? Because I made a couple of little deals with them before. I said, Oh, yeah, for sure. He said, But what is it that you need? And I actually looked at him straight in the face and I said, $18 million. Dollars. <laughs> and I was waiting that, you know, be thrown out of the window or the door or whatever. <laughs> and actually, he didn't blink much. And he said, um, so are you sure of that? I said, yep. So he says, okay, well, go speak to the manager outside. Tell him to open for you uh, an uh, an open letter of credit, meaning with no restriction. It would be open to a bank in California. It was called United Bank of California, actually, where I could draw without any condition, like if I needed a million, I would just go there, draw a million. I went out to the manager in the bank in Paris who was smoking three, four cigarettes and Mm. stressed out, papers and this and that. I said, okay, can you open now? Please, immediately, urgently, I got to run to L.A., uh, $18 million. And of course, he thought it was a joke. He just said, Mario, please, I'm busy now. Why don't you come back later? I said, no, I'm very serious. I just left your chairman. And he wouldn't listen to me. So I said, okay, I picked up the phone, you know, and I called the chairman, the extension of the chairman. I said, okay, nobody's listening to me here. And I gave him the phone and all of a sudden the guy turned white because obviously he got screamed at and boom, the letter of credit was opened. Now so, uh, I come back here with $18 million in the bank <laughs> with the rights of First Blood, the book and the screenplays With uh, I go to Ted Katshev. I say, hey, I want you to direct this. how oh, I love the book. Yes. I go to see the manager. Well, every time I go, sometimes it's me and Andy, my partner. We go see the manager and the agent uh, of Stallone. It was there was there The lawyer was Jake Bloom. Yeah. And there was Herb Nanus in, in those days. Of
0: course, Herb Nanus. We were, the just at, we were
2: just at a movie that he just produced. Yeah, and we said, like, Sly for this. And they asked us. At that time, he did Rocky, but then he did, I think, Fist and Paradise Alley. So it was like this, and maybe... A little down, or whatever. But yeah, for me, it was perfect for the role. To be honest with you, at least my vision. And uh, they asked us for a price in those days. And
0: they asked you for a price. Yeah, they didn't act. They didn't tell you what he wanted. They asked you to make an offer.
2: No, no. They they basically said, "For this is what he would. This is what he want. This is the price to have Sly in the movie." What did he want? i don't know if i i mean this i think we should keep it okay no problem i mean it's unfair to the actor no no know, problem but, no problem you know but it was it was uh quite as quite an amount not a huge but quite an amount maybe probably more or they would have asked the studio because we were the foreign to independent guys right okay and obviously we said yes so now we have stallone we have the cult chef, we have the writer and now we needed the, the other part, which was to play the famous uh, Colonel, um, what's his name? Hartman. No, no, no. The guy who ended up being played by Richard Crenna. Yeah. And in those days, there was a movie that was called The Nimitz with Kirk Douglas. And it was pretty big foreign. And everybody in the foreign wanted Kirk Douglas. So I had to fly to San Francisco. He was doing a play with Burt Lancaster. I watched the play. I'll be very honest. I was suffering for two and a half hours. <laughs> uh, because I wasn't really looking at the play. I was thinking, how do I go and speak to Kirk Douglas and tell him about, will he play the part? Then I go in the in the back room, whatever, in, in, when he finished the play in the, in the room. And he knew everything about the book. He said, I love the book. I love to do it. Blah blah blah. I was like, "Great! Now we have Kirk Douglas, we have Sylvester Stallone, we have us. We make a great ad. We have the money to make it. We uh, we had our line producer, uh, we, which we worked many movies after with it. His name was Buzz Feitshans. We make the announcement. We go to to Mifed, the office, the posters, you name it, and nobody would buy." a country or a village, <laughs> not even a country. They wouldn't buy anything. And I say, My God, what's going on here? So I would call every once in a while. I would get a call from my bank and say, so how is it going? Great. <laughs> I want to hold on. This is so good. I'm going to hold on to it. I'm going to wait a little bit. I think I'm going to get more later. Honestly, it's another big white lie. And then we come back and now we're preparing for production. We, we were thinking, you know, Ted of Canadian, let's go shoot in Canada. We ended up shooting in Canada. And Canadian taxi, of course the Canadian taxi never happened. And then we get to Canada, everybody's there. Now, before the, the day we start shooting, because in the book... But you're shooting, but nobody wants the movie. Yes, but, but I had the money. I'm doing the movie. Whether they want it or not, I'm doing the movie, period. I was committed to do the movie.
0: Even though it's eighteen, there was, no
2: turning back. There was
0: no, $18 million on the line. $18 million on
2: the line. I believed in it. I was going for it, period. The message here is tell white lies and you'll be successful. No, do what you believe in. Sometimes a little white lie is not a big deal. It's not really a, such a bad thing about telling I'm holding on the movie. Maybe subconsciously that's what I meant. But, I mean, I couldn't say to the banker who just opened an $18 million credit line saying... You know, nobody's touching the movie. It's not a very <laughs> nice thing to say, is it? Before we, we we start production, the night before you do this party for the cast and crew, whatever, Kirk says to me, and remember, because in the book, Stallone, the character, John Rambo, dies. He said, remember, I'm shooting, I'm killing him at the end. Well, didn't he read the screenplay? The screenplay didn't have you killing him. But he said, that means fix it. I'm shooting him at the end, basically. Oh. And... My first movie. I don't know what a sequel is. I don't know what a franchise is. I don't know anything. I'm making my first movie. I'm lucky I'm making a movie. <laughs> so I said, uh, fine, that's what the book says. You know, I don't have a problem. So I go tell Sly, uh, Kirk says you die at the end. And Sly gives me the look and like, don't waste your time. Uh uh-uh. I said, but that's what the book says. He said, have you seen Rocky, Rocky 1, Rocky 2? You know what <laughs> franchises, you know what sequels are. And I said, yeah, I I understand what you're saying, but I said, okay, now I gotta go speak to the director. So I go to see Ted, and I said, Ted, you have to work this out, because one actor wants to kill the other one, the other one doesn't wanna be killed, the book says he <laughs> dies, I'm in the middle, I've got $18 million, it's snowing when it's not supposed to snow, it's, it's, it's a big mess here, and I have $18 million on the line here, now they're no longer 18 because money is being spent. And then, so we're having this party, and Ted said it's okay. I go speak to Kirk or whatever. One hour, two hour, three hours, and then he comes back. He already drank every bottle of wine in the in the place. <laughs> and then he comes back, and I see a smile on his face. I said, "Okay, good. he he did what he's supposed to do." And I look at him. He said, "Like it's done. I don't have to worry about anything." So the next morning, nine thirty, maybe even earlier. I don't remember now. It's many years ago. I got a phone call. Mr. Douglas is on his way to the airport. I said, excuse me? I said, yeah, he just took the limo and went to the airport. He's going to LA. I said, what do you mean he's going to LA? He's shooting here in Hope, Canada. <laughs> no. I said, what happened? He said, he went to the trailer of Stallone. He told him, I'm gonna, of course, I'm going to kill you at the end of the movie. And so I said, no, you're not. And the guy took the car and left. <laughs> and then I had a big argument with the director because obviously I don't think that conversation went very well that it's supposed to go very well. And then we got like totally crazy and we called every agent in LA. We said, we don't care who it is. We don't care how tall he is. We don't care how fat or short he is. We don't care about anything. We'll wait for the guy at the, at the airport to fit him. You send somebody now. And lucky enough and lucky for him, bless him. He was a great guy actually. Richard kind was available and came <coughs> over. He got fitted, done, boom, straight to the scene. Killing, no killing. He didn't have any problem with that. <laughs> and we went, and we finally, slowly, slowly made this movie. It was every problem you can imagine? I mean, for us, it was everything was a problem because we're not used to all this. And we did it. Basically, we shot it.
0: You shot it. Mm-hmm. And why don't you tell everybody the process from after you shot it until it grossed a hundred and twenty million dollars? Right.
2: So after we shot it, I remember I was not in Canada at one stage, but I got a call from Andy who says to me, "We're watching the first cut. I mean, the first assembly. Uh, you should come and look at it too." Because I was, I, I traveled for some reason, and then I came back. I said, "This is for me. This, this, I know. I know what's there. I know it's going to be reduced. I, I can see the movie." But apparently, the apparently, I think. Sly was not too crazy about it or something like this. Uh, I don't know. People were like nervous and whatever other reason that I don't really want to go into details. Uh, So I said at one stage, I'm not too worried. Let's, Let's just finish the editing and whatever. But still nothing was sold. Still this movie was unsold and all the money almost spent. Uh, then we come back to LA, we cut, we put together like 10, 15 minutes of the movie. We start showing it to studios. Yeah, you know, you just put all the action. We know how you work. You put all the action together. You make, you make it look great, but that doesn't mean the movie is great. We're going to wait. So we got all those negative things all the time. So you're still getting passes. Getting passes, continuous passes. So then I look at that and he went and said, you know what? Let's go to the editing room. Let's cut down. Let's cut together fifty-five minutes. Put effects, temp score, you name it. Because even if the rest of it is like white screen, and if they like what we've done, they'll buy it. You know, and we spend like hours, sleepless night. Da da da. We and we put it together.
0: Where'd you come up with the fifty-five minutes?
2: Because it was a magic number in my head that. 15, 20, 25 minutes, they can still tell you, yeah, and the rest is nothing. The rest is two people having dinner for an hour, it's boring. And 55 minutes, there's not much they can say. That's almost the movie, you know? I said, that's like almost, you have 80% of the movie. So you do that, and then So we happens? do that, and we spend like in those days $250,000 or something, which was not budgeted for. Are you over budget at this point? Uh, probably a little bit. Probably a little bit. Because I really don't recall exactly all the numbers, and then we decide to make a screening on on Wichita Boulevard. There's a theater that they just remodeled. I don't remember the name of it. It was across the street from a res- Italian restaurant called Orlando Orsini, mm-hmm. and we invited everybody, every studio had, every foreign distributor, everybody in the world. It was a virgin movie, untouched, unsold, nothing, to the screening, and. They all came with the 55 minutes. Of course, everybody was very nervous. Sly came with a suit and everything. All, they all getting ready for this. And then the film starts and all of a sudden, the film ends and they all stood up. And I actually, seriously, they clapped for about 20 minutes. So my God, I said, then we do have something here. So I was right, we were right here. So on the way from the theater to the restaurant, which is about five, seven minutes walking, not even, we've sold all the foreign at astronomical prices. Then we sold in those days, um, I don't know if it was HBO or Time Life, but there was, there was those cable things on its own, the TV on its own. Everything was separate. We sold every right separate. And then we ended up making a deal with Orion for the U.S. theatrical only, a very good distribution deal for us. And it was like the magic number started flying in. And of course, I couldn't wait to pick up the phone and call the banker to tell him I was (laughs) right. And then the movie opens, obviously, and uh, it was what it was. You know, it was a hit and everybody loved it. And then of course, after that, it was easier to make this the the number two or the number three but it was really a year and something of blood sweat and tears
0: but I wanted you to share that story because I know we took a long time with it but I mean for our audience it's just an amazing thing you know you start with nothing you're coming from Beirut right you're basically living in your girlfriend's house with our parents buying a condominium, su- which I didn't even
2: know what it was. It was a, condomin- a condominium
0: basically. and basically buying them supplies, doing everything you can. You're telling whatever light white lie you can to get to where you want to go. Right. You get an $18 million line of credit when you have essentially nothing. Mm-hmm. And you go out, and no matter what, everybody tells you no, and you just say, fuck it, I'm keeping going. Everybody says no, you keep going. And it's just the persistence that you have. No
2: return. You you, you go for it if you believe in it. I mean, I I don't think all movies happen like this. I don't think everybody should do this. I mean, this is the way it happened to me, and that's the way I did it. And it worked out. I mean, there's a lot of things that are maybe, which I think it's luck, it's guts, it's feeling. I'd rather be lucky than you know the genius. I want to be lucky every day and not not a genius. No.
0: Well, uh, first of all, you are a genius and you weren't
2: lucky. You worked hard and you were persistent. Yeah, I like people that are persistent. I mean, they 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 want to do they want to do that thing. And if they if you were not persistent, you wouldn't see me here today. So it's good to be persistent, and I am very persistent, and that pushed me to do it, and I was actually at a point of no return, I mean, I believed in it, it's it's like make it or break it, either you're gonna make your movie, and so what, if it doesn't work, so a lot of movies don't work.
0: So, um, because, you know, there's so many things that you've done, rather than go through the stories of each one or whatever, I'm just going to name some of the movies that you've worked on. Mm. And if you could just tell me one story that like is the, you know, a great story about that particular process or the movie that would, uh, mean a lot to me. Um, there's a movie that I've always loved and I, it's probably out of all the movies you've worked on. It always grabbed my heart and twisted it into a balloon animal was Music Box. Yes. uh, Where Jessica Lange played an attorney who defended her father who was being uh, accused of Nazi war crimes. Yeah. And then she goes across the world and finds a music box that contains a photo of her father uh, with a gun pointed at a young Jewish boy and Mm -hmm. she realized oh my god I got my I got my father off, right. he's free man, and now I know he's guilty. Right. I get chills thinking about it. Do you have a story or something
2: how that movie came together? Well, the, uh, this movie was supposed to be produced by, if I remember, Erwin Winkler. He was attached to it to produce, and he was not here, he was somewhere in Europe. And I don't know how I got hold of the screenplay, and I read it, it was an amazing screenplay. It was so touched. And my partner is Hungarian, actually. And I, when I read it, I, I called Andy in Hungary. I said, Andy, I'm going to send you this. Read it. It's very, very good. And Winkler happens to be in Paris uh, at that time. After you read it, if you agree with me, fly to Paris, meet with them. Let's make this movie. And um, they met They met, and whatever. And Winkler said, okay, fine, let's make it. We, we were providing the financing of the movie. So we had nothing to lose anyway. And uh, and we ended up with Costa Gavras as a director. It was I think it was a great great story, but somehow it did not uh, it did not in, in the box office uh, international or here it did not translate the way it should have translated. I don't know maybe because Costa Gavras being the way he shoots his movie, being a little bit uh, European in a way. Maybe people looked at it more of a European movie than than an American movie. I don't know. But that movie deserved more of what it did. It's a fascinating story. I agree. And for
0: those of you who've never seen it, just go on Netflix or wherever and watch the movie. Angel Heart. If I'm not mistaken, this was a movie where there was God. I hope I don't say the wrong thing. There was a a, a, a girl who was a Cosby kid, Lisa Bonet, Lisa Bonet and yes, she right. was all you know. All my life, I knew her as this little girl on Cosby. Right. And now she's in a movie where she's not a little girl
2: she's not anymore. Good anymore. Yeah. Talk about that. I I read that screen that screenplay was on. Actually, I met Alan Parker in in Cannes when. They were really. They were uh, showing um, the the movie in Turkey. What's the name of it? Uh, about the drugs. Uh, something Express. Midnight, uh, Midnight Express. Midnight Express. Yes. With Brad. Uh, with Brad. Uh, ha, ha, with Brad he, Davis. Brad Davis. And I loved his work. I mean, I, I loved Alan Parker. Any he, he could do anything. So and he wrote Angel Heart, and it was owned by. Uh, a producer in those days that was running around doing uh, buying all kind of books and I called uh Elliot Kastner and I read it and I said oh my god I I, I need to make this movie I want this movie badly so I called Elliot who was I speak I speak to um to Parker in Cannes. I said I I gotta do this with you he said well it's Elliot Kastner I, I can't do nothing about it I said where's Elliot now I said he's in New York I called Elliot. I said, hi, how are you? I'm Mario, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Can we come and meet you? Elliot is the kind of guy, uh, kind of like in in a very professional way. You give him the right price, he sells, he moves on, you know? And I flew to New York with uh, with Andy and my lawyer. I don't remember in those days who was with us. And we met at, somewhere, I don't remember if it was his office or the hotel or whatever. And we made that deal in about five minutes. He said, I want this, you got it, goodbye, thank you. And we got that thing and it, we had the money, I mean, to do it. And and we went, uh, we went ahead and we wanted, uh, actually, Alan Parker wanted Mickey Rourke, which he got, he wanted Lisa Bonet, which he got. Then we told him, you know, we need some name also to help a little bit the foreign sales because we always, we were financing our movies by doing some pre-sales for the foreign and then the U.S. deal. And we got Robert De Niro. uh, That's right. To play the devil, basically. That's right. And uh, which I saw not too long ago in Las Vegas. uh, He was promoting uh, the one with Michael Douglas, the movie he just did with Michael Douglas. Yeah. And I said to him, I said, uh, you are the most expensive uh, one-week actor I've ever met in my life. <laughs> and he loved it. He said, two weeks. I said, okay, well, whatever. <laughs> and that's, that's. I love that movie, by the way. I think it's a great movie. Total Recall. Total Recall. Total Recall was owned by Dino De Laurentiis. It's kind of a, it's a mentor in a way because he actually is the first one who opened very, in a very big way, the foreign market to big American movies. Because, I mean, there were no big A-titles available after Dino We came in. But he had like the King Kong, the Condo, Theaters of the Condo, all those things were not available independently. They were all studios. So he managed to do them like this. And he owned that, and he was trying to make it for a while and couldn't. He had Patrick Swayze, I remember, or something like this. And I read that screenplay and said, oh my God, what a great, great screenplay. And uh, we, bought, we managed to buy it. And then obviously we were very friendly with uh, Paul Verhoeven in those days, who liked it. And then we said, okay, how about Arnold? So then we have Arnold, we have Paul, we have Totavico.
0: I would love to see you in a conversation with Arnold.
2: He's actually a very, very cool guy, very smart guy, very, very good guy to work with. Very, very professional, does his homework, knows everything. And then we argued a little bit about the budget with Paul because he wanted this. We said, no, we only can give you this. And we always end up between this and that. I don't think any movie is ever exactly on the budget. Even if they tell you yes, I, I you really don't believe it. L.A. Story. L.A. Story, I had a deal with uh, a company uh, called Indie Prod, which was Dan Melnick and Alan Shapiro. And they were supposed to help Caracol bring some... Dan Manning knew a lot of those big stars. And, uh, bring me some A talent, A whatever. Help me out a little bit. And I think when he brought in LA story, he said, well, I, I have to give it to Mario as a first look because that's the deal we had with him. But that's not the kind of movie Carco does anyway. I read it in about 45 minutes. I said, this is a go picture. This ain't going nowhere. We're saying yes. <laughs> and he was like, are you sure? I said, Yes, I am very sure. <laughs> and and then we made it. I think it's a very, very funny picture. I really like it very much, actually. Oh right. The doors. Ah, uh, the doors. The doors is uh the doors is a fascinating uh, thing. believe it or not, Tom Cruise was actually in my building talking to Oliver Stone. We had a little dining area down on Melrose and we had our building. And he was he really wanted to play uh the, what's his name, Jim Morrison, and he was taking, he want, wanted to take singing lesson. Or, I mean, he really wanted it bad. And I'm looking at numbers, Tom Cruise, Foreign, nah, 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 nah. and Oliver said, no, I think we should go with, uh, what's his name, uh, who ended up doing it? Val Kilmer. Val Kilmer. And he was right in a way, not because Tom Cruise is bad, but I mean, the look and the whole thing of Val Kilmer in, in, the, in the doors is amazing. And it's a fascinating story. I, I mean, I love that. So you have to turn down Tom Cruise. Believe it or not. How do you turn down Tom Cruise? Well, I mean, Oliver, it was hard to turn him down, but, but, but we had to. It's not turning him down. I mean, it's kind of saying, sorry, I don't know. Yes, maybe turning down or replacing or... It was Oliver's decision, to be honest with you.
0: Tell us our audience a little bit, the story about Oliver Stone that they would love to hear that gives insight onto the genius of the man, but also the eccentricity of Oliver, what you had to deal uh, with.
2: Oliver is, uh, yeah, the genius, like you call him and very eccentric. And, uh, I like, I like Oliver. Oliver has always like a little piece of paper <laughs> in his jacket or his shirt and he comes to see you and he just takes it out and he's got all his questions and notes and he keeps on going and he puts the knife and he keeps on he likes to provoke. And but you have to play the game with him. You gotta go go and, and, and play the same game with him. And uh I think he's very talented. I think uh sometimes like everybody he can go from one extreme to another, everybody does good, everybody does bad, everybody. But it's very interesting to work with him. And, uh, he was, you see, you, if, if you choose a director that is so passionate about making one of your projects, then you're on board with the right guy, in my opinion. You know, you're not just taking a name because he's Oliver Stone period, but if Oliver is there, like so passionate, even saying no to Tom Cruise, but I want Val Kilman, I believe in this and I want and the music and this a uh, now now you know this guy is going to give you the best he can of something he believes in.
0: But also you're, you know, you're relying on making as much money as possible from the foreign and from the, uh, domestic right. rights to the movie. Right. And Tom Cruise is going to give you more money than Val Kilmer.
2: Maybe he would have given me more pre-sales yeah. than Val Kilmer. But at the end of the day, I don't know because obviously I only, we've only done it with one actor. We can't compare the movies now. Uh, Everybody who's seen the movie was crazy about Bad and the way he was. I mean, he looked like him. He acted like him. He, he was Jim Morrison for two hours. So I don't think the choice was wrong.
0: No, I don't either. You know? Uh, a movie that was nominated for two Academy Awards,
2: Rambling Rose. Yes, I like that little, little movie. I call it compared to, it's not a little movie, but since everybody thinks I only make $100 million movies, they forget that sometimes I've done smaller movies. Rambling Rose is uh, Rennie Harlan came to me in Cannes and said, Maria, I have this small little movie that I really want to do, this and that. And in in those days, I also had this video company that I owned. And I read really I liked it, actually, and I met the, the lady who directed it. I said, okay, for that amount of money, let's do it. Why not? It's a good screenplay. What
0: was the budget of that movie?
2: Uh, it was... Less than ten, maybe eight. I, I I don't remember. It's so that must
0: time. have been like cab fare for you.
2: Yeah, probably. Okay. Being sarcastic doesn't hurt.
0: <laughs> was that sarcasm? I thought no. That was just...
2: but, but I told you, everybody thinks I only. It's all the hundreds and hundreds of million-dollar movies. No, I I did do some lower-budget movies, but people don't do not really remember unless you make your homework and read. Right. I've done a lot of homework. Oh, I'm sure.
0: Um, so, uh, tell me something about that movie coming together. Like, was it just, it was easy.
2: easy. It came to me, read it, liked it, small budget, everything went smooth. Was Uh, that the smallest budgeted movie you've ever done in your life? Actually, I financed for the video company, uh, Reservoir Dogs with Tarantino, that was a very small budget. I don't remember now exactly the budget. I didn't know you were involved in Reservoir Dogs. Well, we had a company called Live Entertainment, which was our video company, which became Artisan, which is now Lions. Yeah. And sometimes I had to make some movies just to feed that company. Uh, And Reservoir Dogs was, Quentin Tarantino was working, I think, across the street in a a, a video store or something. (laughs) And he came to me and he said, "Uh, we want to do this, this, this. The budget was like almost nothing. Again, use your sarcasm about uh, not even a cantrip, half a cantrip, right? Uh And I said, fine, let's do it. I mean, it was a fascinating screenplay.
0: So you said, let's do it, but you didn't produce that one or you
2: did? Well, Because I don't, you know, being chairman of a company, you don't have to have your name everywhere produced by and this and that. That wasn't important for me. For me, it was make sure the company was doing well, make sure you're making the right movie. Uh, Knowing the significance of that
0: film after you saw it, do you kind of wish you had your name on that one?
2: For me, it's enough that I that that it was us who provided the finance made it happen. Is more than enough. I mean,
0: but you never did another movie with Quentin. You financed no. that
2: movie for him. You help him out. He's in a video no, for store. Reason there's a lot of some actors, some directors, or some actors. I did, and then nothing else happened. I don't know. It happens, you know. They're okay at a certain level, and then maybe later they change or I change. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that.
0: Clearly it wasn't you. I don't know. All right. I want to talk about a few more movies before we ride off in the sunset here. Uh, Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Mm. That's a big one.
2: That is a huge one.
0: That's I mean, probably the... how do you get what I don't understand is that's, that's the
2: first, story on its own. the first. That's another interview. <laughs> the first
0: Terminator gets made. There's a producer. There's people involved. It's a fucking monster hit.
2: It's a very interesting story. If you
0: how really do you possibly weasel your way into that with you can't
2: no white lie is going to get you into Terminator no, Two. Judge no no. There's no white lies here. There's what what here. There is is first of all I met Cameron through a mutual friend called David Geiler who told me Mario, who actually uh, worked on the first Alien as a writer and he knew James. And he said to me, you should read this screenplay called Terminator. They have a deal, Hemdale is doing it and it was Orion but James is, I think is unhappy or something like this. And I read it and I said, my God. I said, James, is there any way we can be involved? He said, N- I'm tied up to Orion. But I said, okay, if there's any hiccup, anything that goes wrong, if the sky changes color or whatever, you come right here. And obviously, they did it. And, I, and he invited me to the premiere or the screening or whatever. I said, wow, that's exactly right. This guy is so talented. What a movie. And, he, and it was a small budget movie in those days. Uh, that was a small budget. It was a $7 $8 million movie. Terminator no, no, two, no, 2. Terminator 1. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Got it. Terminator gotcha, 1. Yeah. Now, that what happened is for many years, everybody was trying to do Terminator 2. But what happened is when James divorced his wife, Galen and Heard, he gave her 50% of Terminator for a dollar, part of his settlement, something like this. So now you have. The the rights are between Hemdale, John Daly, who died now, the poor guy, and Gail Hurd, who owns the other 50%. So I called John Daly, who's an old friend of mine, very difficult to deal with, and I said, Would you sell your 50% of Terminator? And he blasted me a price like You name it, if you give me this, I'll sell you this, my car and my house. And he asked me for $10 million, half. And of course, he's like laughing, you know, because he was not expecting me to say anything. I said, okay, deal.
0: One of the things that I've noticed through this whole podcast that you do, which is fascinating to me, is like people throw out... Something to you, and instead of like going back and forth in the crate, you just stop it right there and you say, Done, I'll take it. And even though you might be paying a premium, you just cut through all the drama and bullshit, and you're like, Listen, I have the confidence in myself, so what if I pay a little extra? I'm going to make this money back.
2: Yeah, because, you know, not every day you got to, to do Terminator 2. So why am I sitting there and arguing for a week with somebody who might change his mind the minute he leaves the door? In fact, he did. Because He said, deal. I said, okay. I said to Peter, I said, Peter, make the paperwork. And obviously he had the blues of selling. Why did Mario say yes so fast? So he started now playing games. It happened that he was banking with the same bank I was banking, in, uh, it was Crédit Lyonnais in Rotterdam. And he started to play games a little bit, which was normal for him, unfortunately. So when I saw those games, I went to Rotterdam and I went to the banker and I said, uh, and I knew he was in the red and I knew Kerko was in the black. And I said to the president of the bank, whatever in Rotterdam, I said, you know, he owns the right, he owns half the right of uh, Terminator he owes you money, I offered him 10, he said yes, now he's changing his mind, you're the only one who can put some pressure on him, all you have to do is take 10 from my account, put it in his account, which you needed is in red, and put some pressure on him. It's not a white lie, it's a great, <laughs> it's a great deal. And that's what made him finally agree to do it, it was a bank pressure. Also, if you
0: transfer $10 million into somebody's account, it's like you've cashed a check. It's
2: like the deal's yes, done. This is done. I said, just tell him to make the deal because you're in the red. We need them, you know. So that's how it had made the deal. But now I only own half. Can't make a movie with half. Well, you have to make a deal with Gail and her. Uh-huh. That's the second problem. So now, <laughs> now I have not calling me. Come on, Mario, you're the only one who can do it. I say, yeah, right, okay. I mean, there's a limit to the checkbook, you know? But you're good with women. Yeah, I'm good with women, but uh, they all every woman is expensive at a certain <laughs> point. And then, so Lou Pitt was her agent. He was at ICM. Good friend, nice guy. Now, were you prepared
0: to give her 10 million?
2: Uh, no, I, I called him. I said, uh, Lou, what does it cost to get uh, the half? And was for one sequel. From uh, Miss Gayle and Heard, he said, five million and a credit, I don't remember what the credit was, if it's a produced by or I something.
0: remember seeing her name on the movie as a she's credit, and movie. I
2: never understood why she's, her name was on the movie. She's on the movie. Now I know and why. Obviously, I got blamed for everything, but it doesn't matter. She's on the movie. <laughs> she's, on, she's on the credit. And I said... Again, Credits don't deal.
0: cost anything.
2: Deal. No, I said deal. Now she. Sh- why? Why didn't she call that uh, the other guy and find out that he got ten million? Well, I think she. Everybody knew I paid him the the, the ten or something. Well, if it's, if she day, knew, why she, would she ask for five? I, I don't know. Don't ask me now why it was five. But it was five. But it's not finished yet. Now, now, Cameron was in my good grace. He was actually in. We were. We, I, I had an overall deal actually. Also, with, with James. And I said, okay, James, now we got your half, we got your ex-wife's half, we got Arnold on board, who also wasn't cheap. I don't remember his number, but he was not cheap. Hmm. And uh, then James says to me, and by the way, I don't want anyone on this set, blah, blah, blah. I said, I don't, you know, if i if i'm putting all that money it didn't mean me but certainly he didn't want certain people on the set i said if i'm trusting you with all that money and i'm writing you all those checks and this it's because i know you're going to make a great movie me sitting on the set watching what you're doing is absolutely a waste of time i do come every once in a while to look at things and 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 keep the spirit up and whatever but if I have to sit and watch what you're doing on the monitor, then maybe I shouldn't be hiring you, I should be doing it. I mean, there's, there's no reason you hire Cameron and sit to see what he's doing. He won't let you t- to start with and whatever. So now there's, there was a condition that he asked me to do, which I don't wanna go into details, that cost me two more million dollars to accomplish that. So now we're at $17 million for the rights. Can you tell our audience just a little? No, no, okay. No, but it was $17 million. All right,
0: 17 million.
2: Then there was another, (laughs) it was working on the effects Another seventeen million dollar I financed. So now you're at thirty-four million. Yes. Now we looked at those effects and you've seen them in the movie, you know, the morphing. Yeah. Uh, all that. I mean, we're talking twenty-five or I don't know how many years ago. That was so much ahead of their time. I mean, that's that is really genius time. And then of course, now we make the movie. And the budget, I think, if I'm correct. Maybe it was one ten or one, one something, whether 10, one, I don't know.
0: And that was the largest budget you'd ever done in your entire
2: life. CNN news was, was everybody was talking about
0: I believe that was the first hundred million dollar
2: movie budget, correct? Yeah. I mean, the first, officially admitted that. I don't know what the studio, they (laughs) never, you never know that. Every studio movie is 99, 98. You know, you don't know their,
0: their, their budget. You must be like losing your mind because like if, if, if things go
2: wrong, it's over. One movie, it's yeah, over. But I don't think this way. You never have a negative thought. I don't think this way. I mean, I've seen The Terminator. I know what The Terminator is, and I knew it was going to cost more money than uh, than the first one. I mean, already the rights were <laughs> twice the budget of the first one, uh, and then that uh, cost so much. It cost so much. How much money did
0: the movie make worldwide? Oh, God. I, don't I think it was five hundred million. Five, five hundred yeah. million. It was the first. So, yeah. It was the first five hundred million dollar yeah.
2: grossing worldwide movie right. of all time. And of course, all of a sudden, you know, success has many fathers, and everybody took credit for it. Of course, but there's no. And all They were all destroying me because i financing the most expensive movie. Blah blah blah.
0: Uh, they changed their tune when it made five hundred million worldwide. And no,
2: there's no such. No, they still have. They have this boilerplate when they don't like when somebody does something. You know, they have that. They come in and that put that boilerplate in, which is okay. I'm immune. I'm immune to it anyway. There's no such thing as all of a sudden, Mario. It doesn't matter what people think. You know, it's what's important for me is how I feel about the things I've done, my accomplishments. I'm happy with the movies I've done. I'm some movies I would have preferred to be a little different here or a little different there or or, or grossed more or whatever. But if you take all all the movies I've been involved in three billion dollars worldwide yeah it's, it's, yeah it's not it's pretty good actually
0: but i'm sure there's been a time where you got to tell me sometime when somebody said something to you that got to you and you were like it affected you and you were like it, it It. you say you don't care what anybody thinks but was there one time where somebody said something where it just really really got to you and you went home and in the fetal position on your couch
2: and and, you know, and just said, why am I in but, this fucking business? You know, well, I mean, it, in, in every movie I did, every time I, I will okay, move, green light a movie and the budget is this or, or the stories start, so, you know, going around in circles saying this and that, Mario this, Mario that, Mario spending, Mario, I mean, we got a boat in Cannes, crazy Mario spending money in Cannes, blah, blah, blah. Now, if you go to Cannes, everybody has four boats next to each other selling movies. So when I took a boat, it was all very calculated because either I put people and I get them 12 suites at Hotel du Cap at $2,000 a day, and God knows what they spend in room service and phone calls, or I put them on the yacht and I have them all under control and I see them and I feed them. So it's all perfectly calculated. Uh, You buy a plane and you say, oh, here again, he's buying a plane, the, the big spender, Yes, but they forget one thing that if I have to take Arnold or Sylvester or Mel Gibson on his tour, world tour, and I have to hire a plane at $200,000, $400,000 to go here, by that time, I could have bought three planes. So that plane was used also for this. So it was, everything had a reason, but, you know, being on the outside, they don't really look at the real reason. They look at the outside image, the big spender, the crazy guy, the blah, blah, blah. In the meantime... Look at the studios, planes, trains, automobiles, boats,
0: you name it, they have it. Came a long way from the booth number 41 in the exhibition
2: hall. Yes, but those were the actually, you know, sometimes you you, you miss those nice little days <laughs> when you're like, you know, trying and when it was more difficult, let's say. Uh, basic instinct. Yes, again. Tell destroy. me a story around that. They destroyed me in town because I got a call from an agent... Called Guy McAwain, seven thirty in the morning. He says, Mario, I have a great screenplay for you to read. You're the first one. 250 and you can have it. <laughs> and of course you said, I don't have to read it. I'll pay you the two no, fifty. No, no. I said send it over. Okay. I got it by eight thirty. Nine o'clock, I call him back. <laughs> or nine thirty, I call it back. He said, Oh, I'm at the airport on my way to Hawaii. Uh talk to Jeff Berg was ICM.
0: Jeff Berg, of course, was the president of ICM. Right. Back then, now he's the president of Resolution, the new agency that just opened up here in town, right next door to me. Right next door.
2: So I called Jeff, and Jeff said... Uh, well, you know, since we started, we already have offers. We're at four fifty or five hundred. I said, "Wait, wait a minute! I got, waken, <laughs> I got waking up at, at seven thirty in the morning to tell me, read this. Two fifty is yours. Now we are at four fifty, five hundred. It's not even ten o'clock. What happened?" I said, "Well, you know, everybody likes the screenplay now, and everybody." I said, "Okay, so it wasn't given to me like this. I was used in a way with my first offer. If I said yes." Then you go and say Mario paid this whatever. So they started like auctioning it,
1: <laughs>
2: quarter, quarter to six or ten to six. <laughs> I got a call from Jeff Berg. He said, "We have an offer for two point seven fifty. Excuse me, two point seven five million. I said Jeff, do you remember the two fifty of nine o'clock this morning or eight thirty? He said, "Yeah, but what can I tell you? It's two point seven fifty for a script." And from who? From my ex partner, because at that time I was no longer uh, with Andy Viner. He did his, his. He opened his own company, and he also was after the screenplay. But it started with me, and actually, he was not like doing it on purpose. He wanted it. He was starting his company. He wanted uh, this screenplay. I said, uh-huh. Jeff. This has been a long day, and from two fifty to two point seven fifty. Now, if you think after all this I'm gonna lose this screen <laughs> for two hundred fifty thousand dollars, now tell me what is it when so I can hear the word done <laughs> close. He said three million is oh you. I said, I want to hear it one more time. <laughs> He said, $3 is yours. I said, $3 is yours. And I closed the deal. And I don't have to tell you the next day the variety, the blah, the blah.
0: You paid $3 million and for a, a script, screen. for a spec script.
2: and nobody attached.
0: No one attached. No. That, that was the largest amount of money ever. Ever. Ever paid for a script. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. But actually, it was a good investment, wasn't it? It was wonderful. That was the only movie in the history of my movie-going life when I had to get up from my seat and I was pacing in the back of the theater just walking back and forth because I was so anxious and uncomfortable and it made me reevaluate every relationship with a woman I ever had in my life. (laughs) (laughs) That's wonderful. Chaplin, tell me about Chaplin.
2: Let me tell you the real reason that very few people know why I love so much Chaplin. Besides, he's a genius. I kind of saw myself a little bit Chaplin was the misunderstood guy in America. He was the foreigner, came here. I'm not considering myself a genius, but he did his 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 wonderful work. I mean, it sometimes it took him two years, or if not more, to, to make a movie. Did his own first studio with the That's other right. actors, whatever. Was thrown out of the States. That's right. Went to Switzerland, and then they begged him to come back for the award. And he said no. Didn't and he? he didn't want to come back. But then he said, it was a very fascinating scene at the end when, he's, when they're running the movie and you see his tear and, and whatever. And I felt those were the days where I felt like, God, I've done so much here and everybody's fighting me. Everybody's against me. Everybody's, it's like the underdog. They're only against you because you're winning. Whatever the reason is. So it kind of like I felt it's, I related in a way to the story indirectly. So, plus, I liked the, the whole idea of making that story. That movie was at Universal with Lord Attenborough directing, and they wanted Robin Williams. And and Attenborough came to see me, he was like out of his mind. He said, And they already spent like 17 million, some, some amount of money building sets and everything. And he says to me, He said, I, I, I don't understand. They want this. I can't do with this. I said, Well, okay, relax, relax, relax. He said, I want Robert Downey Jr. And I shot a scene with them. I want you to see. And he showed me the the beginning of the movie when you see Robert Downey Jr. taking the makeup, whatever. And I looked at that. I said, "My God, this is Chaplin." Why would you, with all due respect to Robin Williams, I said, "This is Robert. This is Chaplin. This is exactly perfect." I want to do this movie with Robert Downey Jr. I'm but staring I, across from the guy who
0: said no to Tom Cruise and Robin Williams.
2: Well, I mean, it's not a question that they're not good actors or, or they don't know. It was a question of the look. Yeah. I mean, if you look at Chapman and you look at Downey in it, it was perfect. And I had to make it with Universal, this and that. And I greenlit it with uh, a Tempo, and I did it. And it's probably one of the very close to heart movies that I have. Amazing. Cliffhanger. Cliffhanger. Everybody told me, do not touch the snow. No movies with the snow work. Snow is no good. Snow Can't is it. no good. Snow is no good. Na, 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 na. Somebody in the old days, I don't remember, I think it was John Ford, maybe he said, if they tell you, go left, go right. I guess that's me. I (laughs) like Cliffhanger. And I was in good business with uh, Stallone. I was lucky with him. I was making money with him. It was great. Because you've done like three Rambo movies. Exactly. And And I liked Rennie Harlan to direct it. I said, let's do it. Snow or no snow. I don't know. So what snow?
0: (laughs) And it's all about these relationships that you can't. Why would people
2: say, no, let's not make it snow. What does that mean?
0: Well, that was another movie where the opening of that movie just completely... The first 20 minutes of this movie, everybody was like on under... Their... 20, the first seven minutes. I mean, it just was unbelievable. Yeah. Like, I can't couldn't believe that a movie was starting Yeah, with somebody... Like, you, you thought was the main character. Yeah. You felt the love between the two
2: characters. There was a lot of tension at the beginning. It was amazing. Incredible. When we went to the premiere in Japan, and it was the princess or somebody from the royal or em- emperor family and uh, mm-hmm. who came to the screening. And after the beginning, when the, all the tension started, this and that, I think I, I think she fainted or something. <laughs> 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 it was like a big thing, you know, they had to take her out and this and that. It was a was a, I was very happy with that movie, actually. It was a pretty good hit.
0: It was great. And just uh, one last movie I want to ask you about, uh, uh, Stargate,
2: mm-hmm. which
0: was a movie that wasn't normally in your lane, because it was more like of a huggable,
2: lovable science fiction kind of movie. Well, it with was, I'll tell you. you why it was, because I'm a big, big fan of anything of ancient Egypt. So when I hear Stargate, when I hear about the pharaohs, when I hear all those things, you see my eyes opening and I want to do something always about this. So when I was told the story of Stargate, automatically, plus, you know, Roland, I did with him uh, Universal Soldier before, and I was going to do other things with him. I, I liked the idea of Stargate. And uh, very funny because it was financed by a French conglomerate called Canal Plus, Plus. Uh, Because in those days, Calco was not in its best financial uh, situation. So we needed some names again. And I called uh, the agent of Kurt Russell because they like Kurt Russell. I like him too, actually. And I said... Is Kurt available for Stargate? He said, "Yeah, yeah, he's available, but he's expensive." The minute I call somebody, he's expensive. You know. <laughs> so I'm used to the expensive now. And I was asked quite a big number, and again, it didn't take long to say yes because it, it, you know, you say yes to something, and instead of arguing the million or the half a million or the whatever, it moves the, the it moves the process because you can spend months arguing and then the movie can go sideways. And I didn't want to do that. So we got Kurt Russell. Then we got uh, James Spader. And then there was the other part. And I got this idea. There was an agent who now has this big company as a producing called Bill Block. Yeah. And I said, Bill, there's a guy who was in a movie that the Weinstein brothers did where he was a, a, you think it's a girl, but it's a guy at the end. Crying game. Crying game. I said, I don't know if he's an actor. I think that was his first movie. I don't know who represent him. I don't know where he is. I know nothing about him, but impress me. You go get him. I'll give him a million dollars. I'll give you a million dollars for him if you can deliver him to me. And I got to give him credit. He heard the million. The guy was in London. Where I don't know what he did, but he brought him he, <laughs> he put him in the movie. And obviously, again, Mario, Mario, Mario. But I think he was perfect for the movie because that part he was it was like an androgynous kind of uh, looking guy. Yeah, he came with a lot of problems too. I mean, I didn't know this guy had this problem or that problem. But he, but every actor has some problem. It doesn't matter. But he was perfect for the role. And at the end, the movie is made and it has some subtitles because they speak that their own language. I remember showing it to some studios and I said, you know, they all like shrugged their heads and ah, we don't understand da 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 da. I said, you know, but that's the beauty also of subtitles. When you don't understand the language and if there's any hole here or something, you can fix it in the subtitle. Anyway, at the end of the day, we we put it all together and Roland did the best job possible and between the effects and everything, the whole thing just fit perfectly. Frank Maikuso was running MGM in those days. He took it, we made the screening, they all liked it. And they were all estimating the weekend to be maybe a $7 million weekend. So, you know, like Friday at four o'clock in the morning, you know the exact number. So, of course, that Friday, I was waiting for a phone call at four o'clock in the morning. And then in those days, I had somebody, I don't remember the guy who was working for me who called me or somebody from MGM. He said, you ready for this? I said, oh, my God. That That's... Well, when you're... When you, are you ready for this? <laughs> it's it's uh, very good or very bad. But, you know, after all what I heard, I was expecting to be honest with you, like, bad. He said, this movie might end up doing $17 million weekend. As excuse me? He said, yes. Now I couldn't sleep anymore. $17 million is great. <laughs> and, of course, it was a hit. And the French immediately jump in France and they make this whole thing about Canal Preluis and they put it on the front page of their TV guide or whatever kind of police guide. And uh, there was many, many TV series, many Stargate 1, Stargate 2, and a lot of things happened on television after that. That's right.
0: Yeah. All right. Final few questions here. Tell me the greatest piece of advice that you ever got from anyone in your
2: career. There's one I kept on hearing a lot of. The time like, don't be like, you know, because sometimes I could be very stubborn and like a persistent, like we said. They tell you when everybody tells you you're drunk, you better sit down. Like,
0: say that one more if, time. If,
2: if everybody tells you you're drunk, sit down. Like, if everybody tells you something is wrong, you better listen. Uh, that's a good advice, I think. If a lot of people say the same thing to you, then there must be something. But everybody was saying to you that you were. I didn't mean, I didn't say I did listen. I said that was an advice. Got it. Okay. I don't know what other advices they gave me. Don't overspend. Don't do this. Don't. I don't know if I ever listened to any of them. I don't think you did. No, I don't think. (laughs) I don't think so. I can give one advice, which you started this, that if you have a passion, if you believe in yourself and don't give up, just be persistent, keep on knocking on the wall you get it done. And if it doesn't happen now, it might happen later. And if it doesn't happen, it wasn't meant to happen. But I don't think anyone should give up. I agree. Your
0: proudest professional moment.
2: But uh maybe Terminator 2, because they were all after me. I mean, from the news to Wall 3 to lawyer. I, I mean, every the whole world was on, on my head. And then to prove everybody wrong. So, well wrong was a nice kind of uh, thank you, goodbye, I'm right, you're wrong, or I got lucky and thank you, whatever.
0: Does anybody ever come up to you after they publicly humiliate you before things go After it all goes well, does anybody ever come up to you and say, you know, I'm sorry, Mario, I I said those things in the newspaper, I said those things in the magazine, or I said those things behind your back, I was wrong. Does anybody ever do that to you? I don't think so.
2: I don't think so, nor I expect it. I don't don't expect anybody, I mean, people can say whatever they want, they don't have to apologize, they're free, they can think whatever they want, it doesn't, doesn't really affect me much.
0: What's your biggest disappointment professionally?
2: It's how the business changed. It's now, I mean, in my days, in all the
0: movies I've done. On well, your days, you just go to a bank with your godfather no, and say, give me 80 million, and no, they give it to you. No, but
2: it's not the question of money. It's a question of people were having fun and enjoyed making movies. There was a passion about movies. There were movies being done. Now it's corporation, accountant, shareholders. It's, it's numbers. It's, uh, you know, we got to make two blockbusters for the summer. We have to do this. We have to fit in. It's no longer about what the movie is. It's, I don't know. It's a formula. It's numbers. Is there is no passion, uh, passion in movie making anymore. I, I mean, some do but it's not like in the late 70s and the 80s.
0: So when you see a movie, let's say like Precious,
2: you don't think there's passion in a movie like that? Some movies that still have, uh, there's, there's a lot of movies that are being done now, done out of passion. I mean, I, I read something on like on The Butler, how long it took to put that movie together, how many people were involved. That is so rare that it happens. But those are good things that used to be. That's how the film business used to be. People believed in it, did everything to make it happen. And they enjoyed making the movie. They enjoyed actually the, the process of
0: the So movie. if the m- business has changed to where it's not enjoyable anymore, why are you still doing it?
2: I'm not doing it as much as before, obviously. Mario, you're flying all over no, the fucking I'm, world, I'm, I'm, it's craziness. Yeah, but I do all the different kind of things. Uh, I'm doing it my way because first of all, I do not belong in the studio system. I've never, I stayed at Panama maybe three months and I left because I do not understand the system when I have to have somebody with all due respect, an executive, whatever they call them, where they start <laughs> discussing the screenplay and they tell you, yeah, but the character or this or that, or I, I don't understand what they're talking about. And I said, okay. And I look at them, I said, have you done any movies? No. <laughs> okay. So thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> So, I do not understand that system. So I belong to the independent system. So still do, yeah, and I still do. So, and unless and I, I'd rather spend five years working on something that I believe in and I make it independently. But of course, you need the studio to release it here because you know they do monopolize it's it's a monopoly. You got those five, six studios, and they manage after Calco, if you if you think about it, a lot there were a lot of independent companies. And slowly, slowly, they were bought by the studio. They kind of like took them over, because they, they realized, wait a minute, those little companies are doing something we're not. So we might as well either get rid of them or buy them and create our own smaller, you know.
0: Tell me, independent. Tell me a movie that you wanted, you wanted it bad, and you you, which rarely happens, lost out on it, and it became a huge hit.
2: It was a movie. It's a very interesting story. I was in Thailand, and I was preparing a movie called Lolita with Adrian Lyne. And then Roland Emmerich had a screenplay called Independence Day. And because I did some movies with uh, Roland, Linwood Springs, who used to work with me uh, at Caracol, called me and says, "Mario, there's this screenplay called Independence Day. Everybody is after it, but Roland feels like you should, you know, give it give it uh, a look." I said, "Send it right away to Bangkok." I get it. I read it. Now I have this financier in France, uh, very wealthy guy who owns theaters and all kind of things, who's financing uh, Lolita. He spent some money already on it. We had Adrien, blah blah blah. And then I'm reading a Roland Emmerich, something called Independence Day. And I pick up the phone and I call Paris and the guy was in his car on the freeway in France, in his little French car. I said, uh, I need to talk to you for a second. He said, hold on, I'm on the freeway. And you know, when you like take a stop for a second, I said, I know we're doing uh, Lolita. I know we spent so much money. We can either pick it up later or Write it off, whatever. But there's this thing called Independence Day. I think the budget was in those days, 60 million, I'm not so sure. And I really want to do this one. And he said to me, well, let me think for a second, for a minute. I think it was the longest minute ever, (laughs) ever. And I waited and I waited and I waited. And he says to me, well, you know, Independence Day might go over budget. I said, yeah. It will, it will probably go over budget like every other movie. So it's not 60, 70 or 75, whatever. But it is a very commercial movie. Roland will do a great movie. Lolita is a very limited kind of thing. You're remaking a Stanley Kubrick thing. It, it, it's, it's a It would be a great movie. I believe in it. But it has a limited audience in a way. French decided, so, you know what? I think Lolita for us, blah, blah, blah. That is like a big knife came right through me and I had to respect his decision and I had to say no to it. I didn't even finish saying no to Independence Day. Roland was in Fox's offices. They made the deal in about not even a a second.
0: Why didn't you just go to more financiers? I
2: I had had 20 minutes to decide. I read it. Oh, you had 20 minutes. I had, they gave me this respectful time to decide and I had this guy in France who financed the movie. and I was telling him, do me a favor. Do not spend the 40 or the 30 or whatever it is on Lolita. Let's do Independence Day. So, and... so, so it wasn't the Jeff
0: Berg 20 minutes. It was a real 20 minutes. No,
2: no, no. That was a real 20 minutes. And that is, that's a big disappointment, actually, because that, that was a big hit and a fun movie to watch and everything.
0: It was great. It was great. Um, all of your stories are drowning in the ocean. You can only save one. That's your like, holy shit. This is the highlight chapter of my book kind of story. Any crazy thing that happened to you with any artist or actor or director or anything, anything that you would want to tell our audience that, uh, you, no one would believe
2: that it happened to no, I have to think about that. Honestly, right right on the top of my head, no. Uh, no there's too many things happen with all the actors. I mean, it's like a never-ending story. On every movie, there's always something. Every actor, there's always something. So it's kind of unfair to come up with one. And even if I know anything about an actor, I, I just wouldn't go and, and gossip about an actor or a director. I mean, it's not right. And... That would be only my version. God knows what his version is. So, you know, everybody, when you make a movie, at the beginning, it's wonderful. You have lunches and dinners. Everybody loves each other. Then you make the movie. Everybody hates each other. (laughs) And at the end, you open the movie. If it's a hit, you re-love each other. And if it's a miss, they hate you again. So when you talk about movies 20 years later, it's like, it's it's history. Who remembers? It doesn't
0: matter. Last question, and you're out of here. What advice do you have for the young producer who is living in an apartment with her girlfriend with the parents living upstairs or in a studio apartment or just living check to check but has the dollar and a dream and wants to figure out how they can have the kind of career that you have and make the kind of content that you've made and been nominated and won so many Academy Awards for the films you've worked on. What advice do you have for that person starting out to, to be able to go on that journey think, and be successful? I, I think I kind of answered you
2: that about the persistence, whatever, but I also co-financed the movie because Universal was scared to fully finance the movie. It was called Field of Dreams, which is probably not even in my- uh, One of my favorite movies of all time. And it says, if you build it, they will come. So if you believe in something, just keep on at it. Do not give up. That really, I really believe in that. It doesn't matter if years pass. I, I mean, it was, you know how many years before I got first blood? It was for 10 years. They wrote 10, 10 13 different screenplays. So if you believe in it, go for it. Keep on, uh, keep on uh, knocking on walls. Don't be afraid of rejection. Rejection is only a word no, and N-O, oh means nothing to me. And N-O doesn't mean anything to me. You know, keep on... There's always a way. If you want it, there's a way. You got to find the way. Don't give up, basically. Well, uh, Mario Casar. Thank you
0: so much for coming here. It You're was an, more than welcome. It was an I kept honor. my
2: word. I told you I
0: would come. You did keep your word and yes. and and I tried to be as persistent as I know you are. And no, uh
2: but you did good. No, I'm glad I'm actually I don't I've never done this in my life, so I have no idea. I'd be I'd be the first one to admit I don't know what a podcast is. I have no idea what any of this is.
0: But that's okay. But you know what I noticed about you? But you enjoyed yourself and you... No, yeah, because, and. you
2: know, you took me a little bit through memory lane, which usually, um, not every day I do that, and I usually don't, there's no reason for me to go through memory lane. I mean, I walk in my house, I see memory lane everywhere, so. Uh, but there's too many stories, you know, it's like uh, 25, 30 years of career is hard to do it all in one hour, obviously, but you get the essence of it. I mean, you knew exactly what, what you wanted me to what you wanted to ask me or what you wanted to hear. And I really hope that every young person that is listening to this, that have dreams, that they want to arrive, do not give up. Never give up. Whatever your profession is, whether you want to be, I don't care, science... Scient- a, a doctor, a dentist, whatever it is, a painter, but especially in the movie business, because the movie business is such a, a non tangible business. It's all in the head. It's all in the in the in the brain, and it's all about timing, luck, people, and gut feeling. I do believe in gut feeling and instinct. I really do believe in that. You can read everything in the world, and sometimes something tells you, eh, and something tells you, yes. So follow your gut feeling.
0: Well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. This is more than welcome. Awesome. Thank you all. All right, and as always, if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. This is Barry Katz with another episode of Industry Standard.
1: say it's to glory. I'll scream in game. Put you on shoulders. Walk you to fame. You'll get all the money. Drive that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going for life is for the dreamer. They have about the gate. It's never quite over. So it all feels the same. You pick your own poison. Dig your own grave. Down in the valley. A fortune egg.